Hey there. Welcome to the Dishcast. This week, <clears throat> thank God I am feeling fine. No more sicknesses. My guest this week, whom I've known for a while and have found to be an extraordinary exemplar of what it is to grapple with and to attempt to live by the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> he says in a rather pious term, but I just mean that as simply as possible because James Allison, who's a, a Roman Catholic priest, has helped me better understand the centrality of that simple, simple message of Christianity. And that's why I wanted to bring him on today to talk about what Christianity is, what it's been for him, how he struggled, and how he has endured. He's a Catholic theologian, priest, and writer. And his life's work <clears throat> has been the application of the thought of the French theoretician of desire and violence, René Girard, to the understanding of basic Christianity. Fueled by this, he's attempted to stand up for truthfulness concerning matters gay and lesbian in the life of the church. He's the author of many books, including The Joy of Being Wrong, <laughs> something that would certainly definitely resonate with me, Faith Beyond Resentment, another book that just really did strike something deep within me, and the introduction to the Christian faith for adults, which he calls Jesus the Forgiving Victim. James, thanks so much for joining me. You're, 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 you're in Madrid right now. I'm in Madrid. Well, thank you for having me. It's a very great honor to appear here. It's always lovely to see you, but actually to be a guest on your podcast is... <laughs> oh, please, James. It's uh, very special. Very special. Tell me, tell me where you grew up and who your parents were. Okay. It's a world familiar to you. I grew up in, in and around London. My parents were very conservative evangelical Christians. My father was a conservative member of parliament starting... I think he entered Parliament when I was four. Previously, he worked for Conservative Central Office. And so I grew up in a, a political and religious family. And that involved a school, a, you know, kindergarten in London, what we Brits call prep school, meaning the young private, a private school for youngins between eight and 12 in a place called Hawkehurst in Kent, where one of the amusing facts was that there was a Russian embassy hideout about three blocks from the school <laughs> because the rule at the time was that no Russian diplomat could live further than 47 miles from London, supposed to be able to be controlled by the, the government. And this our village was exactly 47 miles from <laughs> so it was the very furthest. <laughs> <laughs> so the Russians could yeah. actually get there and not be, not be tracked. They could get there and not be... Well, they could be tracked, but they, they, weren't, they weren't disobeying the rules of hospitality okay. of the host country, if they... With her. So it was so a and then you went to Eton, right? You, then I went, you, then you, I went you to Eton. You were a classic product of a conservative home, of, of the classic Etonian high school or prep school or public school, as we call them. We call them public, yeah, high school. Yeah. My, my father was an old Etonian, my two uncles, was my grandfather was an old Etonian. So I think my, my poor mother, the only, the only men she ever knew in her life were all old Etonians. So very much... <laughs> Part of the British elite, in a, in a way, and, and your your father was actually became a minister in in one of Margaret Thatcher's governments. In he was minister in both of the first two Reichs. No, actually, no. The first Reich, he was uh, yeah, he was a minister first for Northern Ireland and then in employment. Then in the second Reich, he was her par parliamentary what? private secretary. When you say Reich, what do you mean? <laughs> Well, as in the Third Reich, you know, how many, she had three Reichs. Oh, Jesus, Lord. Uh, you mean the second, her second government, you mean? She her second government, yes. Right? Yes, indeed. She was democratically elected, James. Oh, I, I guess I know. Just, just, just so, mean this high irony. Is that what you're, is that, is that um, what you're? Uh, uh, yes. yes. <laughs> so, but you, were you not at that time as a kid? A supporter of Thatcher or a supporter of your oh, yes, father? I voted, your I, I, of course, I was passionate. And were you brought up an evangelical Christian? I was brought up within that, but I was never able to, to stomach it. <laughs> I, not what, quite, I, why? What was it? And I think probably, to be honest, my mother was hyper-religious in the sense that it was borderline mental illness. I mean, she saw witches and demons everywhere. In other words, 
the mixture of conservatism and religion with which I've brought up was a series of conspiracy theories, huh. to, be, to be frank. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, there were communist influencers who were gay waging in spiritual warfare on, on Britain, and it was all coming to an end. My parents, for instance, were very much involved during the 60s with something that was called the Nationwide Festival of Light. Essentially, I mean, my father was a John Stott convert, my mum a Billy Graham convert, and their understanding of Christianity, as I've come to understand it later, was a massive reaction against the beginning of the liberalisation that started in the 50s and a massive desire to go back to those things in the 60s. So, you know, my father, as a member of parliament, voted firmly against the decriminalisation of homosexuality when that finally in came before Parliament in 1967, when he was an MP. Though, bizarrely, and again, this just shows things one does not know at the time, my aunt was the former lover of Roy Jenkins, the Home Secretary, who actually put it through. <laughs> really? <laughs> so, That's the thing you know, about yeah. British elites, is that... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cool. it's the, the, whole a... thing is, the whole thing is ludicrously wrapped up in itself. It is, yes. And I also discovered late in life that my, one of my father's best friends from childhood was at school with him from when they were little boys until 18 was Lord Montague, who was the person who actually was the cause of the Wolfenden Report. Let's, let's explain to our listeners who probably have no idea who Lord Montague was. Well, Lord Montague of Bewley was one of the reasons, I mean, because Britain is the bizarre sort of place it is, one of the reasons why homosexuality was eventually decriminalised was because in the 1950s, the law, I mean, Lord Montague of Bewley fell foul of the law. I see. He was, I think he, he was a bisexual man, but he had some sort of dalliance with the guardsmen and was caught. And this sort of produced a sort of a kerfuffle in the House of Lords. And that sort of thing doesn't happen to people like us. I mean, it's quite appalling. We'd better do something about it. Right? Yes, indeed. And so, so in fact, we can, we can, we can, to some extent, root the 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 decriminalisation of homosexuality to to the House of Lords feeling as if their dignity had been upset by the by the reach of the law with respect to sodomy. And Lord Montague, who was certainly not a, an attention seeker, unwittingly became actually a long-term public activist. He stood up very decently for the rest of his life. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, about this issue. And I last saw him at my father's funeral when he came and uh, was extremely warm to me, who I hadn't, met, I hadn't met him before. But he introduced himself and told me a bit about himself, which he didn't need to because I knew exactly the moment he said who he was, I knew exactly who he was. It's so hard when I meet young gay guys today and try and explain what it was like for me or you growing up, let alone what it must have been like for someone like Lord Montague. Yes. And that period of time in the 50s, primarily, in which this happened, if you readers, listeners may remember our, our dishcast with Jamie Kerchick about called Secret City, which is an amazing history of the 20th century in Washington, D.C. for gay men and lesbians. And the 50s were a time of real terror and also real heroism. And odd, the, the strangest people were heroes. Lord Montague was one of them. Uh, Frank Kameny over here was another one, just like very regular people who just said, well, this isn't going to happen to me. <laughs> Why are they yep. doing this to me? And, and refused, to, refused to buckle. But it's hard to explain to people today that the steel it took not to crumple under that weight was extraordinary. And I don't think we know anything like it today. It, that nothing right. like that kind of bravery is, thank God, even needed. Except in Islamic countries, where well, I think it's very much... I'm talking now entirely about yeah, yeah. America, but absolutely, you're right. Absolutely. I'm sorry to be and, so Western-centric. These, these, kids, these kids being executed, but we're seeing simply for standing up for what is basic honesty and freedom and for women's rights in Iran at the moment is, is absolutely appalling. But, it is. But we is. fool ourselves if we think that we weren't like that until quite recently. Oh, absolutely we were. That's why, I mean, you're right. And there's a sort of weird disjunction about that because people are incredibly hostile about something like Qatar and rightly so, but forget that within our lifetime there was a death penalty of homosexuality in our own countries, I think. Yes, no, it was definitely criminal. It was definitely a, a, a criminal offense. It was certainly a criminal offense. I'm not sure whether it no, was a hangable offense. Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. I don't but within the last hundred years, remember... What was the wonderful Irishman who was 
hanged by the Brits for his diaries, Casement, Roger Casement. He was hanged for, for treason, but that which was used to make it impossible for the people who supported him to, to, to campaign for him to be set free was the fact that the British government produced a book of all his lovers. Hmm. And that's what year so was that? 1916, I think, he mm. was hanged. And he had been a, a British civil servant. In fact, he was the one who blew the whistle on King Leopold's abominable slave trade in the Congo. Mm. He was a very, very extraordinary man. Well, let's go back to your childhood, because there you are. Mm. You're, you're brought up in an evangelical situation, and, and you find some of it a little hard to take because it was sort of on the edges and a little conspiratorial. Now, one might think that such a person would therefore decide to be a countercultural, subversive, an atheist, an agnostic, or some reaction to yeah. that kind of religion. But that's not what happened. You actually converted to Catholicism. Can you tell the listeners how that shift happened? Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing, of course, is that it wasn't merely that I wanted to be countercultural or all that. I mean, I discovered that I was gay when I was nine. Uh, when someone told me what queers were, <laughs> a word which at that time had no chic about it at all. And immediately, I was my first reaction was actually to be relieved that there was a word for such a thing. Last, someone could actually put a, a name to something. But then immediately after that, I realized that I was an abomination, that I was lost on an open sea with no vessels and no port in sight, that I would lose the love and support of my parents and of any adults in my life. So, if you like, the whole religion, also, that Jesus wouldn't want me, that he couldn't possibly love me because I was this abomination. But therefore, the probably the very best thing I could do was to limit the damage that I would cause by virtue of my love, which was clearly a dangerous and bad thing, by being as good as follower as possible of Jesus, even if he didn't actually want me as a follower. You so, chuckle. You chuckle. I chuckle. And it is somewhat funny, but in fact, that was actually yeah. the reasoning in your head and the reasoning behind... In a nine-year-old head. In a nine-year-old head. Yeah. It was actually the reasoning. It was basically, let's see how I can limit damage as being a form of goodness which might eventually be recognized even if I can't be genuinely good. <laughs> That's uh, that uh, thing. Yes. I bet you I'm, I'm not the only person who's told you that. No, and I, I remember a story my mother tells about me as a child when one day out of the blue I asked her as she's leaving for work, Mom, does God know everything about you? And she said, yes, Andrew, he knows everything about you. I said, everything? He knows all the way down to everything you think? She said, yes. And I said, oh, I don't think there's any hope for me, Mom. Mm. Uh, and I was also young like you. I was probably very, I mean, we were both kind of, precocious and probably overly intelligent at that point. But I had to figure it out, and you are trying to figure it out as a child. Yep. And it's very hard for people now to understand that now their kids are being taught that they can be whatever sex they want to at three. You now, Then it was, as you said, mostly defined by complete silence. Yep. No idea what was going on. All you knew was that this was absolutely awful, so awful you couldn't yep. even talk about it terrible, terrible tragedy if it were to afflict you. And here we are, having been born in that climate, living today in an utterly, in, certainly in some parts of the world, an utterly transformed one, certainly in where we born, where we were born. Yep. and where both of us live now, yes. So how did that lead you to Catholicism? Well, curiously, one of the things that, we, one of the books we were allowed to read late at night was the Bible in a good Protestant boarding school. That's what you had on your chair. And so because I'm a, a night owl and never really adapted to the whole business of going to bed at seven, and <laughs> which was where they sent, when they sent you to bed in those schools at that time. I, I, and of course, in Britain, as you know, in summer, it's light till 10. So no amount of curtains actually stop it being perfectly able to read at night in those sort of circumstances. So I read the bits of the Bible, and of course, found that the bits about love and so on and so forth. And something about that made me think, okay, there's something here that's for me, but it doesn't match the world that my parents want to put me into. So there must have been something genuine there because it enabled me to detect that this was much more of a control mechanism than it really should be, <laughs> if you know mm. what I mean. 
But I also, over time, well, I, I fell in love with, I was falling in love with another boy, of course, that made me realize that this was what, what I was. And then when I was 12, falling in love with another boy who happened to be a Catholic, a straight boy, I should say, so no, there was no nothing. But I became aware that there seemed to be some sort of warmth of personality, a certain tenderness of style that was rather different from Anglo-Saxon Protestant schoolboys of whom I was one and, you know, <laughs> to whose world I was accustomed. So I began to wonder whether there wasn't something slightly different about this and that maybe there was a form of Christianity in which I would be okay. You said you read the bits about love and stuff and you sensed from this other person a kind of war, kind of love that you found adherently attractive. Could you unpack that a little bit? For me, what were there any passages? Presumably, you're talking about the New Testament. I'm talking about of... St. I'm talking about St. John's Gospel, basically. Yeah, yeah. St. John's Epistles, I think, probably. Yeah, in as far, of course, you know, my my nine, ten, eleven year old reading of them understood very little, and of course, in some of the Bibles that we had, certain passages would come under lines that we're supposed to pay attention to, and and in some of Jesus's words would be in red, so as to what the important words were. So it wasn't difficult to find the passages about love. No, and, and John is a particularly pure place to start, it seems to me, from, the, from his first sentences. It, it tells you, okay, I'm going to tell you a story, but I'm telling you this at a different kind of level than the others. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you something really kind of profound and eternal that happened and that found its way through history into this moment. And you, the very first lines of his gospel, in the beginning, in the, you, you, it takes you, it takes you that. And word, it also yeah. in those was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And of course, what that meant, the word. In a way, in logos, of course, in the Greek, right? So yep. it, it means both word and reason and truth. And I would say intelligible structure, structure of intelligibility of everything that is. I yes, think that's, which that's hugely, hugely important. It is right because it's 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 truth. It's um, truth. It's truth. But as a, and, and also as an anthropologically available reality that we can understand and be on the inside of, which is what natural law was supposed to be about. Supposed to be. It's supposed yes. to be about. It's about actually inferring from reality what is true using very simple reason. I mean, that's it's not supposed to be a hugely elaborate exercise, but this commitment that Christianity has, you could tell, to just what is true, incredibly powerful, really, because it, it, first of all, it says there is something called truth, and secondly, you can find it. Well, not, not only you can find it, if I understand it better, it's more, and reality is actually trying to re reach out to you, to open you up to being able to enjoy it more. It's actually, it's not a subject-object thing. <laughs> right, okay. It is, it is the force which is turning us into it. Right. In other words, that, that creation, as it were, is coming upon us rather than being our starting point. <laughs> and it's coming upon us, taking advantage of our intelligence so that we can be aligned from within to it. It's, that's the sense of adventure for me that I understand by, by that. And I think that that's so important, especially given how easy it is to see creation as this kind of backdrop, which is somehow also something, something that happened a lot of a long time ago from which there come some basic rules which you must now obey. Right. <laughs> which is the moralistic account and, and is hopeless because it really does mean that religion is a trap that you must get back into whatever box you have come out of. You must be squeezed back into whatever toothpaste you have become unsqueezed from. <laughs> toothpaste you, you have become unsqueezed from. Well, the version which I have come to understand is something much more like creation is being brought into being, and you are on the inside of it as well, a tiny little part of it, but with some intelligent capacity to participate in being opened out to what is really real. And the whole point of that is so that you and other people should enjoy it more. <laughs> enjoy it more? Which, what God says that? <laughs> well, it was, you know, that was, uh, yeah. Was, but tell, tell me about that, because if that means that Jesus' disciples must have been, for example, obviously, overwhelmed by this sense. 
in the Epistle to the Hebrews, it's one of my favorite verses in the Holy Scripture, talking about Jesus. It canons, it canons Jesus's whole mission to these three phrases. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he held as nothing the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. It's the notion that this whole thing is so as to bring about something joyful. Right, right. And that the joyfulness is, I mean, that creation is a joyful project. That it is, it is good. There is something wonderful about it. It causes angels to sing. And unfortunately, we tend to be living in a, a half-cocked version of it. <laughs> We've got ourselves trapped in a, a you know, a, yeah. If you uh, if you place Jesus in the context of the religion of his time. He was violating it in, in, in different ways by saying what matters is not these laws that you've been told, although they're not irrelevant, but they're not what really, you're missing the point if that's what you're looking at. If you're missing the point if, you're gonna, if you think you're being punished if you violate these laws. What the point, God loves you and wants you to be fully whole and real and alive. Yes, and that means having joy sharing love with each other and finding it a joyful experience to be alive, sharing God's joy. Now, the, there was a sort of orthodox Christian view that Jesus was punished brutally for the sins of mankind. There is this atonement, and through this personal sense of punishment, he kind of endured the worst suffering anybody's ever endured in the world, and therefore you're off the hook. There's, there's that kind of, and you see that in something like Passion of the Christ. You see that in Mel Gibson's sort of version of what, and in some rather lugubrious narratives of the passion that I learned as a child. But to me, and this is part of why, I, what, what, what most fascinated me in the passion story, in the story of Jesus actually choosing in some ways to be murdered brutally, is less the facts of the murder, which are horrible, less the, but no more horrifying than a million other things that happened at that time and place. No other grotesque injustice of it. Again, you could say a million other. It is the way in which he dealt with it. It's the way in which he conducted himself during it, in which there was just this unbelievable serenity to this, that that's what always captured me about this. There was no anger. There was no self-defense. There was nothing but engagement and embrace of what was happening to him. There was, we know that beforehand in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was terrified by what was about to happen. But once he gets going, it is an extraordinarily serene event, right? Yes. And I think, I mean, I'm very glad that you observe it that way because one of the real difficulties that we face, those of us who really love the Christian faith and want to keep it alive, is how many people have got stuck into a version of those events that sees Jesus as in some way paying a price to an angry God who desperately needs someone to assuage his wrath, and only Jesus will do. So Jesus agrees to go through this grotesque charade, and so God condemns him and treats him awfully and then says, okay, those of you who agree to be covered by his blood can be, can be saved, which frankly is a, what I call a neo-Aztec version of... of neo-Aztec? <laughs> yes. But that version. was the version you were kind of brought up in, I presume. It was the kind of version you were kind of brought up in. And, it, I mean, it's the first version of it, the first account of understanding Christianity in that way was, was mooted by St. Anselm though his in a much more moderate form. But it was then tightened in the early modern period by Luther and Calvin in particular. And it was tightened particularly in the sense that not only was this the paying for the price, but also the notion that we were utterly depraved. This Aztec, neo-Aztec version of the sacrifice essentially has Jesus paying a price to a God whose wrath needs assuaged. And once he's paid the price, you say, okay, it pays price for what? For sin. What were the sins he paid the price for? Well, there's this list. And then basically it's the Old Testament. Though, of course, Christians muddle it slightly by saying, well, of course, there are bits of the Old Testament to which we pay no attention. <laughs> but our homosexuality, we pay a great deal of attention. And so that's how it works. But anyhow, the notion is, therefore, that the structure of goodness is fixed. And, and this is the key thing. 
we can't learn anything from what we discover to be true by human learning, by what we would call science, or what they would call worldly wisdom, <laughs> about what is genuinely true, because only the words of God literally tell you what is genuinely true. That's the world I was brought up in. That is a sacred trap. And that means, for instance, that no amount of scientific learning showing that you or I are bearers of what I would call a non-pathological minority variant within the human condition, which seems to me to be as neutral a way of describing it as possible, and thus is much more akin to left-handedness than it is to, for instance, anorexia. No amount of learning saying, yes, that's exactly what we observe, stands up to the word of, the, of God, because that wisdom is automatically suspect as being the wisdom of this world. It's funny because I had exactly this kind of conversation in a very different way with a previous guest, Carl Truman, who is, mm -hmm. at which point I said, for example, that Aquinas' teleology, or the notion of teleology as a natural and a natural idea, was debunked by Darwin. Like, there's, they can't, sorry, you can't, it's done because we discovered something truer than that, that we know from our reason is true that humankind is a function of natural selection over hundreds of thousands of years and that therefore and that we are driven by this genetic adaptation to changing environments that created almost random uh, but always environmentally optimized version of life so as a as a catholic born in the 20th century and a, a grown up in the 21st century to simply say, well, I don't believe in Darwin because the Bible says otherwise, is not about the truth. It is no. about the trap. It's about the, the sacred trap, and precisely because it is impossible for them to imagine how you could attribute the saving grace of Jesus' death if you don't have that trap. Whereas it seems to me, for me, that's the genius of René Girard, is having opened up the possibility of understanding actually a much more ancient <laughs> and beautiful account of why Jesus went to his death that ticks all the boxes of traditional orthodoxy but does not involve setting up a sacred trap. <laughs> and tell, just tell, tell me, spell that out. Well, you know, very briefly, what Girard noticed, how what he would call, what he initially called the mechanism of the aleatory victim, which then people started calling the scapegoat mechanism, and so he accepted that. How how that is to be found throughout ancient myths from all over the world, so way beyond any possible, what's the word, propagation of the scheme. But as well in ancient mythical accounts, ancient sacred books, different variants of it, including in the Hebrew scriptures, as well as in Greek tragedy and, you know, and Virgil. What, this, what is the... What was the victim? What's the word? The the what the, victim? The, the aleatory. As aleatory. In, yes, the arbitrary. Okay. The meaning, arbitrary. meaning. I see. You know, when when humans fall into rivalry, and which we fall into because we're such good imitators of each other, you know, as that, that Aristotle was right on that one. <laughs> we are the best imitators amongst the eight. We imitate far better than our nearest uh, simian relatives. But the better you are at imitating, the more risk there is that emulation will become rivalry. And if you are more and more like each other and imitate each other, then no one is going to... There's no outside force to, to stop your rivalry. And there's a good risk that you'll all kill each other. It becomes an all for all. But one of the things that we can observe is that on many occasions, what starts as an all for all mysteriously turns into an all against one. And the extraordinary thing about the all against one is that it works. Suddenly, everybody is at peace over against a cadaver. And the people are slightly astounded to find themselves at peace because they had been in a terribly frightening and dangerous frenzy up until a few moments before, which means that the one who they thrown out, A, must have really been responsible for the evil that had come upon them, and B, must be a person of extraordinary power who, in his departure, had given them this peace. This Right. So there is some sort of ancient, let's say, pattern. There's some ancient pattern, which in, we can even see in the beginning. Human, uh, profound human resolutions are, are created by the creation of a single scapegoat or mechanism in which we yeah. can all then put our differences aside and say, but our real worry is this thing or this person who is violating exactly. everything. But, and here is Gerard's point. At first, this is not conscious. I mean, it, 
the, the, the simian group that starts this up does not consciously know what it's doing. Curiously, it becomes conscious in doing this because it's the emergence in the midst of a potentially seething group of something that is different that enables symbolicity to come into being. I mean, the difference between you know, something standing in for something else, which is, after all, what makes us different from, right. <laughs> from any other animal, is that the, the possibilities opened up to symbolistic, which are possibilities, but also a massive crisis. Because the moment we become symbolic, that means that our shared culture runs the risk of running us more strongly than our instincts. So our instincts themselves start to be reoriented towards our, our group's culture, which, of course, is hugely disturbing. It's one of the reasons why we as humans, we have no natural, no natural sex, no natural eating, no natural sleeping. <laughs> All of those things are culturally, we receive them in culturally organized forms, and we have to work out what makes sense. We have to work out what really is for ourselves, which is very difficult because you know, our instincts are just not that much good. My dog has much better instincts than I do. And even dogs are, as, as you know, hugely humanized. <laughs> they, they have been inducted into human patterns of desire. So, so where does, where does the, the Jesus story fit into this? Well, I mean, what, what Giran noticed, which was rather amazing, having picked up this present, this constant fallback on the all against one, as being something which holds culture together. He then began, he assumed that he would find the same thing in the Hebrew Scriptures because all the 19th century anthropologists had said, well, there's no real difference between Christianity and all the paganists. They're basically the same. And what Jihad discovered is, yes, that's true. All the paganists you do find in sacred Scriptures, but with one difference, and which is an in principle inexplicable difference, which is that in the account of the All Against One, obviously, the story is only told by the survivors. It's the winners who tell the story. It's the people who execute whose account of the version is given. Romulus is the founder of Rome. Ramus doesn't get his story told. The gods pat Romulus on the back and say, well, well, well done, my lad. Nasty business. Someone had to do it. But your, your sacrifice is what has guaranteed the foundation of the world. Um, and what Jihad noticed is that time and time again, when you get the similar pattern, the similar mythical pattern, the victim's voice is heard. So that Cain, of course, Cain survived. The victim's voice is hurt? You said not hurt. It's heard. 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 So Abel isn't there to speak. But God doesn't pat Cain on the back and say, someone needed to found culture and civilization. Awful pity about having to kill your brother, but there, it was a good sacrifice. <laughs> God stops Cain and says, where is your brother? His blood cries to me from the ground. In other words, this is one of Jiro's great quotes. He said, God calls, sacrifice, God calls murder what we call sacrifice. And that's one of the constants, which little by little becomes clearer and clearer in the, the Hebrew scripture, that the voice of the victim gets to, to tell the tale. You get it, the Joseph story is a wonderful undoing of the Oedipus myth. Many of the, the stereotypical accusations and mythological things to do with the Oedipus story, which assumes the innocence of the people of Thebes and the, the guilt of Oedipus, are turned on their heads in the Joseph story. The Joseph story meaning? Being the last chapters of of Genesis, where Joseph and his brothers, um, Joseph is scapegoated by his brothers, sent to Egypt, refuses to commit adultery with the wife of his boss, because he says, but Potiphar has held, withheld nothing from me, so how could I possibly? <laughs> there, is, there is quite literally no Oedipus complex in Joseph. <laughs> he understands perfectly well that precisely because the father figure, the good father figure, withholds nothing from him, he couldn't possibly asleep with this mother figure. She, a false accusation is made, he's thrown to prison, etc., etc. But you can tell that the Hebrew authors understand what they're doing because later, at the end of the story, when Pharaoh, when Joseph's brothers are, you know, he's reunited with them and all that, Pharaoh decides that Joseph needs a wife. And so he chooses to give to Joseph as a wife the daughter of his high priest, Potiphera. Mm. But the daughter... Mm -hmm. So it's quite clear that they're the right generation. Mm -hmm. In other words, they knew perfectly well what they were undoing. And so 
But Giorgio's point is that what you get in the Hebrew Scriptures is gradually the demythologization of the uh, the victim mechanism, which means, which is one of the reasons why the stories get nastier and nastier, because they become more and more realistic. They actually come they're less and less mythical, precisely because they're telling the truth about violence. And less and less defensible from the viewpoint of the person less reading less this and abs- absorbing this. And then you arrive with, well, you, you have... Jeez, you have Socrates in a, in a similar paradigm, right? In, in a similar paradigm, though quite interestingly, there were some very, very interesting readings of Plato with showing how both Plato and Socrates are playing with this, playing with this in a very, very sacred way. In other words, they understood something about it, but not as something that could be overcome, but as something that needed to be played to. Just the fact because, that, it will, that this will always happen, that scapegoats will always be punished and that the societies require this somehow to survive. Yep. And and that all the elements of the ancient sacred are actually held up by this. And Virgil also recognized it, which is why at the end he, re- he realizes that there is nothing except this violence which holds civilization together. So, you know, the last people who get killed at the end of the Aeneid just go down into hell and there's a terrible, terrible roaring. And it's what one of the reasons thought why why Virgil himself said he wanted the Aeneid destroyed after his death. <laughs> Thank heavens it wasn't. <laughs> but the point is that as it as the the nature of how we are becomes clearer and clearer, the more despairing in a certain sense it gets. Right. And and in the what we see in the New Testament, and this is the, the extraordinary thing about it, is God coming into the human condition so as to speak to us as and through a human being going through exactly this process. Of being scapegoated. Of being scapegoated. Not because he wants to be, not because it's a good thing, not because suffering has any value. For none of those reasons. Not to assuage the Father's wrath. If anything, to assuage our wrath. Because we are the kind of violent divinity that always needs to push someone out in order to make ourselves feel good or united or whoever the Daily Mail wants to point the finger against this particular <laughs> this particular weekend. But that's what we do. But the assuaging of our wrath involved going into that place, as you say, knowingly, serenely, deliberately assuming death. And that's the extraordinary thing about it. It's someone going in there and saying, actually, I can do this because I am not run by it. Yes. And because I am not run by it, I'm doing this for you so that you too need no longer be run by it. When you say run by it, unpack that for me. Run by systems, well, I won't use the word system, but run by fear, violence. The fear of death, to, fear, fear of violence, violence, and fear of uh, and shame. This is, I think it's one of the things which our bad account of Christianity underestimates by having made it all about the forgiveness of sins, as though that was a slate-cleaning exercise. It avoids, I think, something which is absolutely central and which appears much more in the New Testament that we give it credit for, is that he was occupying the place of shame. The place of shame is naturally there where one does not want to go oneself, and there, therefore there where one gangs up with others to put someone else in that place. <laughs> right. And, You've described beautifully, was it, I forget in which of your books, about the flight which shame produces. Yeah. And I think, that, I think that's absolutely right. For me, this is one of the central signs, if you like, of modern Christianity failing in my country and your country, is that it has become detached from being able to occupy the place of shame and enable us to dwell in that peacefully. I mean, people have started treating Jesus as having an idea about forgiving sin rather than actually occupying the place of shame so that we can learn not to be frightened of our places of shame. And we can be held tenderly in those places because he is occupying that space. In other words, it's only only if you think that that you think he didn't love us so much that he paid a bill. He liked us so much that he didn't want us to be run by the things that actually take away our responsibility, take away our ability to, to become rational over time. And, and shame, I think, is shame and fear are the two greatest ones of those. <laughs> yeah, there is something shameful about the crucifixion. Absolutely. It, it, was, designed, from... it, was, it, it was public 
for shaming. That was it. It was from the Romans' point of view. It was the most particularly shameful of the many methods of execution which they had, and of course that was added to in the Jewish context by the fact that it was considered to be cursed by God if you were hanged upon a tree. And of course, just the cross, the cross beam meant that that was considered hanging upon a tree from the Jewish understanding at the time included crucifixion, impalement, basically any wood-related death. Also, the stripping of all dignity from the human being, the nakedness, the exposure, yes, uh, the the sort of sex explicitness. They're not. They don't have nice little loincloths up there. They are. They are no. spread eagle naked as as the most vulnerable natural being you could imagine. And and it's funny when you when you grow up in a faith where you are kneeling down in front of that person. And if you're a Catholic, of course, you're actually looking at the person. It's not abstract. That's right. right. <laughs> you have the, the blood that, coming no, down. Right. You have the wound in the side. You have all of it. And you yeah, are yeah. sitting there. You're sitting there. I don't know. You probably would. Uh, well, no, you weren't because you weren't. But as a nine-year-old boy praying to this massacred, murdered, tortured person. Yes. And, and see in that act of being murdered and the acceptance of that and the, the, his decision to treat it as almost irrelevant, really, as the, the, the key to life. And it, it's, it's a very deep thing. And it's a, it, it, it confounds you because it, it, it tells you about suffering's depth, which is it teaches you so much. And, and the recognition that if I like you and I've been put in this place. There is literally nothing that you could do to me that will stop me liking you. Yeah. In other words, no amount of fear and shame could actually take you away from my liking for this, which is why I needed to, to drink the dregs, as it were. But this is not to satisfy God's bloodlust. This is, in a sense, to say, okay, this is how you tend to create unity. And unity is a great thing. It's when you have unity that you're able to rejoice together, have feasts. It's when all the things that humans do well work. Let's see if you can avoid your shortcut method of getting it, which involves throwing someone out. Right. I'm occupying this space so that you don't need to put anyone in this space any longer. Let's see if you can play another game, a way of being together from rather than over against the people who you're inclined to throw out. So something actually positive rather than negative. Absolutely. It was the opening up of the possibility of us becoming new creations. In other words, by that I mean no longer the shortcut version of creation. Uh, and we humans, are, we're, what's the word? We're, I was going to say irredeemably, but that would be an unfortunate choice of words yeah. in the circumstances. But we are, we are endlessly inclined to shortcuts if we have an honest, uh, if we have a chance to, to get something for nothing, we will. If we have a chance to, you know, what's the word, make a profit off exfoliating something, we will, rather than saying, let's take this responsibility and see if we can build up something and we can then all enjoy this together. <laughs> right. Because um, we're full of fear of each other and the world. Um, absolutely. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of sickness. We're afraid of violence. All reason, fears that are completely valid completely in many, valid. many places, but that require some kind of overcoming. And it's the, it's, uh, isn't it one of the things that Jesus says most often, which is be not afraid? Like the fear is the real enemy. I'm not afraid. Yes, be not afraid. And there's a, I once what? was, there was this wag who told me that he could, there's a joke, it was kind of a joke. It's not actually a joke. It's a, it's an anecdote in which someone is at some, goes to some wise yogi and he says, so, can you sum up Buddhism in three sentences? Just, or actually he said, no, I, can you sum up Buddhism in one sentence? That's right. He said, no, I can't, but I can do it in three. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay, what, are those, what are the three things? And one is that one is everything changes. Two is anything can happen at any time. And three is I am not exempt. And I think that's, not a bad summary of, of the Buddhist approach to how one deals with being alive. Right. But I'm going to throw you a very tough <laughs> question. How would you, if you were to do the same thing with what Jesus was trying to teach us, what would be the key 
the core concepts that you would, this positive, this not the scapegoating version of unity, but a non-scapegoating version of unity? Well, I think the, the, first, the first one would be, do not be afraid. And I think that you're, you're quite right on that one. The second one would be, imitate me. And the third one would be, forgive each other, because that's how you'll be forgiven. Right. That's it. You know, the love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have you. But but with the key thing of forgive, forgive each other as I have forgiven you, because I think that the notion of forgiveness, one of the weird things that we have, as you know, as, as Catholics and as Christians in general, is the doctrine of original sin. I think it's a much more important doctrine than many people bear, and it's not basically a piece of muddled paleontology about Adam and apples and <laughs> even snakes. It's basically, I think, a, a rather more fundamental spiritual claim, which I think is enormously rich, and it is this. We are the creatures for whom forgiveness is our access to being created. Okay. Unpack that a little bit. Well, it defies, it defies logic, because we tend to think of the world being, well, you're, you were created, and then you fell, and then you needed forgiveness, then someone forgave you, and now you can, you can go to heaven if you right. behave properly. Whereas what I want to say is, no, actually, we're always, always in the middle of something here. Creation is an ongoing process in which we find ourselves. We humans, having entered into symbolicity, <laughs> are the ones for whom our access to being created, which is going to be something much bigger than we can know, passes through our being forgiven. Curiously, in our cases, forgiveness is prior to creation, hmm. and it's very weird because so we're 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 born with original sin that is already forgiven. Of course, in a chronological sense, yes, but our access because the whole point of the doctrine of original sin is that it's that which can be forgiven. But the reminder is: wait a second, you aren't who you start off. You didn't really start off from here. You are something wonderful and good. And you are caught up in being less than yourselves. And you will be able to get out of that in as far as you learn to forgive each other. <laughs> right. Sin as a way that is encumbering your happiness, uh, as opposed to this terrible evil that's controlling you and that you oh, need yeah, to fight yeah. against. It, no. it, it's saying, no, the point of this is, is, to, forgive. is joy and happiness. Well, uh, forgiveness, is, forgiveness is prior to sin. Sin is an ancillary notion, not a foundational notion. In other words, the definition of sin, properly speaking, is that from which you can be forgiven. <laughs> How do you tell the difference between something being a sin, for instance, and something being a, a form of mental sickness or something like that? Well, a sin is that which can be forgiven. It's a fully human, but a degenerated human. Whereas something that's a form of mental sickness is not something that you can forgive or not forgive. It's something you need to learn how to help the person deal with. Right. Uh, yeah, that's something quite different, and I think that that's the. Uh, but there's also this understanding, this understanding from God that yeah, you are going to screw up. You are. It's okay. I love you. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's who you are. I think in the in the like going back to that moment in my childhood when I when I when I when I when I pray or when I try to pray, and I try to imagine as far as one can what God's relationship is to me, you know. And I wrote, I wrote this in my book, Love Undetectable, which was, it's almost, for me, at that point in time when I suddenly found I could be dead and deported within, <laughs> within a year, it's kind of one of those moments in life where you're just, you just get knocked sideways and don't know quite where you are. And God's voice and that's the word I would use, even though there were no words, really. The tone, it's the tone, really, that I felt I absorbed from God. And then, I mean, that, I was, that's how I experienced it. Well, I, I'm not trying to argue anything except from what no, no, I no, understood no. happened to me. I and, have a similar experience, so I'm entirely aware of these and things. And the but... tone was, the tone was the following. It was Andrew, Andrew. Don't worry. I've got you. You crazy 
person, you're completely lost. I know you're, you've got all the, but I love you. Don't, don't trust me. You're, you know, it was a both kind of exasperated. <laughs> God was exasperated by me. Sure. But through the aspir- exasperation, there was this incredible commitment to me as a human being. And it, it, the, 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 the moment when Jesus visits Martha and Mary, I've talked about this before, in my, is where he gets frustrated with Martha because Martha's telling him to tell Mary to do this and that and I'm busy doing this and you've come here and I blah, 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 blah. And he just goes, Martha, Martha, you fret and are anxious about so much. Just let, let it go. That's the tone of voice I hear, mm. which is not you evil person. Get this out of your system now or I will condemn you. It is, oh, why can't you just be your better self and trust me to help you be that? Yep. That's, for me, where Christianity really is. At least that's the yes. Christianity that I grew up to love. Absolutely. And I think that that's a central, that's a central point. And, and curiously, there's a famous old, I don't know, little, little phrase that says, that if you want to know the difference between Luther and Aquinas, is that Luther thought that humans were very, very intelligent, but slightly diabolical. And Aquinas thought that humans were basically good, but not very bright. (laughs) Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>